Hello, I'm Jane Lynch, and you are listening to Improv Nerd. Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Oh, Everybody, this is Jimmy Crane, and you're listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, and we have a great one for you today. Our guest today is Jane Lynch. You know her as Sue Sylvester from Glee, the TV show where she won tons of awards, including an Emmy, Golden Globe, and People's Choice Award. She gained fame in Christopher Guest's improv mockumentary, Best in Show, and she was in Chicago promoting her new Christmas album, A Swinging Little Christmas. We talked to her about Second City in the Annoyance Theater, where I first met her in the 90s when she was playing Carol Brady in the real-life Brady Bunch, how she prepares for an improvised movie with Christopher Guest, and, of course, her new Christmas album. Before we get to the episode, I, I, I'm, I'm really grateful that we got this episode. I've been trying to get Jane Lynch on the podcast for maybe a year and a half, two years. Um, and I'm just, I'm just grateful. She was so nice. And uh, like I said it, in the intro here, I've known her since the 90s uh, when she was doing the Real Live Brady Bunch here at the Annoyance Theater. And as you know, part of my obsession, I guess it is, and part of the reason I do this podcast is because I want to become successful and I want to learn from my guests. And... Um, Jane Lynch, to me, is someone uh, certainly uh, that um, I can learn from. And, and I learned immediately when I knocked on her. I, I was knocking on her uh, hotel, uh, the suite to her, uh, the door to her suite, and she opened the door. And I uh, very nervously and Mr. Low Status, Mr. Low Self-Esteem, myself, was like, hi, Jane. And I put my hand out. And she was so gracious. And she said, Oh, I, I, I don't shake my... I think she said, I, I, I hug my friends, or I don't shake my friends' hands, I hug them. And that was just... So, because I was nervous, and I was really... really I was afraid. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I was afraid. Uh, because I always feel like I'm putting people out. And that just... That, that was so kind and so warm. It just opened me up, and I felt... Um, I, I just felt... Uh, I just felt welcomed. Uh, and as you know, I, I never... <laughs> It's in my DNA. I never feel welcome. And the other really cool thing she did, I, I like to bring a, a gift when I go to, to when I go to people's uh, hotel to do an interview. And I, I stopped and I got six cupcakes, which weren't turned out weren't enough. Um, and so she had one. She gave one to her sister, and then she gave the rest to our crew. So it's just she's just a very nice person, and you're going to love this interview. Um, because especially it, the last 15 minutes, she's very honest. She talks about winning an Emmy and um, how it, it didn't feel like she thought it would. And um, it's just it's very helpful for me because I always think if you get an award, she's gotten tons of awards. I just Wikipedia'd it, she, tons of awards. And I always think you get an award, it's going to really validate you. And she, she gives her take on winning the Emmy. So we're going to play a song, uh, and I, I, uh, we're going to play Up on the Housetop, which uh, is off her Christmas album. And then we'll go right into the, the interview, which is about a little over an hour, and it's chock full of stuff. So please listen to, please listen to this. You're going to love it. Here it is. The Jane Lynch episode. Enjoy. Up on the housetop, reindeer paws. Out jump swinging Santa Claus. Sliding down the chimney with lots of toys. All for the little good girls and boys. Ho, 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 who wouldn't go? Ho, 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 who wouldn't go? Up on the housetop, click, click, click. Down through the chimney with good Saint Nick. For little Kate Who, me? Hurry, Santa She can't wait Ooh. Give her a dolly That laughs and cries ah. One that will open And shut its eyes Ho, ho, ho Who wouldn't go? Ho, ho, ho Who wouldn't go? Up on the housetop Click, click, click Down through the chimney With good Saint Nick Do, 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 do. Next comes the stocking For little Tim oh. Hope you're filling it To the brim Saint Nick, come on, Santa, swing it. 
Jane Lynch, I want to thank you so much for being our guest on Improv Nerd. Thank you. And I feel a little ashamed because I came in to the door and I shook your hand and you, you did. And I said I will have none of it. And I know. I gave you a big hug. I pressed both of these right up against. That and area. I appreciate that. I really appreciate that because it made me feel welcome. Good. Yeah. Well, you are, and so is your whole crew. Yes. Um, so you grew up in the Chicago suburb, Dalton. I did. Dalton. And you got an undergraduate degree at theater at Illinois State. Correct. And then you got your master's degree at theater at Cornell. Cornell, yes. How did you get interested in comedy? Um, let's see, I don't know. You know, it's never a, a, like a, um, a logical choice where you go, let's see, what do I do? I'll do comedy. You, you, you fall into that type of stuff. And um, it, you're compelled. And it's beyond reason. It's beyond logic. Um, and uh, you just find yourself compelled to do it. Uh, uh, saying that, I uh, always tended to get the uh, the com comedic parts. I was considered a funny person. I loved comedy from early on. Where did that come from? The love of comedy. Uh, well, my parents are really funny. Mm -hmm. My and my mother unintentionally so, and my father in a kind of a um, really corny. Like he loved. Johnny Carson. He was even courtier than Johnny Carson. But Johnny Carson also had a sophistication around it. But my dad was way into the, um, you know, so-and-so just flew in from California, and boy, are their arms tired. <laughs> and he'd pause as he got his joke. And uh, my mother was just unintentionally hilarious. She was a little spacey, and everything that came in here came out. Came out no filter. Mouth. No filter, yeah. Um, and, but, but a really kind, both of them very kind people. Um, and uh, I just found myself loving to laugh, and my brother loved to laugh. My sister, my sister was the butt. She's in the other room. Uh, many of our jokes, because she was a little bit like my mother too. Whatever came in here came out there. Um, so I, I loved the the Carol Burnett show growing up. Um, I loved what she was doing. Not that I thought for a moment it's what I could do, uh, but I loved that uh, they all seemed to be friends. And even though she was the, it was the Carol Burnett show, it was really an ensemble comedy and everyone was allowed to shine. And as I became older and, and started doing sketch comedy, I was like, oh, that's what it is. It's about teamwork and it's my favorite thing in the world. I never want to be alone up there. I, I love working with people. So stand-up was not a possibility. Not for me. No, not for me. No, not at all. And so how did you get involved with Second City and the Annoyance here? Because that's when yeah. I knew you at the Annoyance. Well, I was, I had been, you know, I graduated from Cornell and I came pretty much right here to Chicago. And you had known about Second City growing up? Oh yeah, okay. but and no, no uh, uh, desires to go that way. It was not, it was not on my... You, you know, wanted to be a serious actor. Sort of, a serious, but never serious. I, okay. I always knew I'd be the funny person, but I also loved, you know, when I got to do uh, uh, see more serious roles. I loved it all. I just loved being on stage and I loved it all. Um, I usually ended up with the comedy part, but when I got here, I started in the non-equity world, which is quite rich and thriving here right, right. in, and, in yeah. Chicago, even more so now, I mm -hmm. think, and it was pretty damn great back in the 80s. Um, I, I joined a, a Shakespeare company called the Free Shakespeare Company, and we did Shakespeare for free, which is why we did not make any money, right. but we were over in Piper's Alley. Probably, it's where ETC used to be. Now, I... I don't know what goes on over there anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I get lost right. because it's all the second city, the huge, beautiful second city. It's just but, like a complex now. It's like an exactly. office building. Ex well, yeah, but it, there's, it does have a lot of life in it. Yeah. But we were over there in Piper's Alley, and uh, where ETC eventually was in uh, the late 80s. And we did Shakespeare shows, and we did them at um, high schools, and we did them in Lincoln Park. Um, and so I kind of, you know, I used every bit of my training. <laughs> Meaning that I was once reviewed as um, there was no scenery left after Jane Lynch's Margaret and Richard III, a part that's usually cut because it's so over the top and bombastic. But I, I, I did. You really chewed up the scenery. Oh, in totally. Yeah. Oh. And so, how does that lead you to Second City? Well, I, you know, as we were, I'm sure you remember this. You auditioned for all the big theaters. You remember we had to call. Yes. And if they picked up the phone, it was usually busy. And if they picked up the phone, praise God, you got an audition. Uh, uh, Second City was just one of the many that I auditioned for. So it was on a list, basically. It was on a list, like Goodman, with the Goodman, Step, uh, not, not Step, well, I don't think they had Generals. Okay. I, I don't know. Um, Northlight, 
Victory the, Gardens. Victory Gardens, yeah. the whole thing. So I, I got the Second City audition, and I showed up for it, and it was a bunch of people doing improvisation, which I never liked. I always felt insecure around. And what made you insecure about it? Uh, jumping off the cliff and mm -hmm. making things up. Mm -hmm. I would rather have lines. And just being there in the moment scared the hell out of me. What if it doesn't work? What if I'm not? I just shied away from it. And it shied away from it in college, too, when we would do improv. But somehow I was good at it, but I hadn't caught up with myself yet. My ego and my fears hadn't caught up with what was the truth for my set of skills is that I'm pretty good at it. And so I went up there in spite of my fears and I did the auditions and I was chosen. You remember in those days there were only two women chosen. Yes. Um, and now it's, I think they do 50-50. In fact, they were saying there's a group now with four women and two mm -hmm. men. But in those days it was a strict four men, two women. And I was chosen along with Jill Talley to be one of the women of this touring company. And no one was more shocked than Jane Lynch. And uh, so I stepped into it. And then from there, yeah. you, because uh, I knew you at the Annoyance during right. the Real Life Brady Bunch. Right. So then you, you do that. Right. And you meet Faith, uh, Faith Soloway, Faith right? Was our, Faith Sol Soloway was our piano player for our uh, touring company. Right. Yes. And Jill Soloway, and they come up with this idea of the Real right. Life Brady Bunch. So we're done with touring at this okay. point. And I didn't get on the main stage, so I'm looking for something else. Was that to a do. disappointment? Was oh, that huge. Okay. Oh, huge. It, it, uh, it, it broke my heart. Um, and I ended up doing, like within a month, doing a play at Steppenwolf. I, I got cast as an understudy in something, and then in the, that I was cast in a one act, and then I got cast on their main stage a couple of times. I, did, I think I did three plays there. But in that time, Faith and Jill, uh, who I didn't know, and I, I, would, I just met through Faith, came up with this idea because the Annoyance Theater was starting. I remember the meeting where we named it the Annoyance, and I was, remember thinking, oh, what a terrible name. And of course, what happened at that meeting? Because I don't remember. Oh, that yeah. yeah. So it was uh, Mick Napier rented this huge, gross space on, uh, was it on Clark or Broadway? I was on Broadway. Okay, Broadway, was on Broadway. Uh, Broadway and Belmont. Yeah. In Belmont. And um, in order to make the rent, he said, we have to have a ton of people in this theater seven nights a week. You have Monday, I'll do Tuesday. You do, and Jill said, I'll do Wednesday. And um, that's when Jill said, I have an idea. It'll be easy, it'll be fun. We're going to rip off the scripts, I'm going to type them up from the Brady Bunch, off of VHS in those days, and we'll do actual episodes of the Brady Bunch. Easy breezy, it'll be a blast. We can get drunk and eat pizza. And we did that, and the first night, there was a line down um, Broadway around Belmont to get into the theater. It like struck a chord, much to Mick Napier's um, horror. <laughs> right. He was like, he thought it was you know, probably the cheapest thing we could do, but it, it, we did bring in a lot of money for the theater, and he actually played Bobby. Um, and so he got over it. And Steve Carell was in it too, yeah, wasn't Yeah, Steve Carell played Greg a couple. He was the first Greg. Mm -hmm. And then Pat Town became Greg. So um, I think Steve Carell then got on uh, Northwest at Second City. And then, of course, went to the main Do you have stage. any favorite moments of, the, of doing the Brady Yeah, Bunch? the absolute first one okay. that I remember. I mean, I have many. Oh, my God, it became just crazy fun. But the first, uh, the first scene of the first episode of the first night we did it, it opens up on... Alice and Carol and the kids flipping burgers. And we used only like a cube and a spatula. And so we all went like, and the crowd went fucking nuts. And I remember my heart was just pounding. It was, uh, it was pretty amazing. It became like, it immediately it was like this huge, the lights went up and people were screaming. And then this is something I read in your book, which I thought was very interesting. The show goes to New York and then yeah. eventually LA, the real life Brady yeah. Bunch. And, and you say in your book, which I was not aware of at all, you were drinking in those days. Well, everybody was. Right, in yes, fact, I wasn't yes. even drinking half as much as most people. Mm -hmm. But it was enough for me, and I was suffering over it. Yeah. And, and, and what made you decide to stop? Because I don't drink yeah. anymore. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to stop? Well, it, 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 uh, it was all I thought about. Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't wait for the moment that I could have a drink. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew it was a problem. I knew that uh, it was enough for me. Because, like I said, there were people around me drinking much more, like starting even earlier, right. and it didn't bother them at all. It really bothered what, me. What kind of drinker were you? Were you, you did the show Beer. and come home? Would you come home and drink? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't drink that much. I, I have to always stress this, that it, but it was, and it was, to me, it was too much, and it was an addiction to me. Mm -hmm. But the amount I drank is irrelevant. Right. Even though I keep bringing it up. Because I right. guess I want people to know that if you're only drinking one drink, and it's driving you crazy, and it's making you feel bad about yourself, then, yeah, you, it's not good. It's the relationship you it's have with It's the relationship I had with alcohol, which was fucked up. 
and I did drink by myself, and I was always depressed. Um, I never debilitated me. I, I had terrible hangovers, but I still showed up for work. I still did my plays. I still did what I had to do to be a responsible person. So when you were in New York and L.A., you were still drinking, right? No, I stopped drinking in Chicago during the real life pretty Okay. Much. Which, Which is was hard because, fist. as you know, yeah. the Annoyance Theater, it was yeah. like... You drink right, while you watch the show. Right, right, yeah. You drink when you're in a show, yeah. you know. Um, so, uh, and then, uh, so you stop drinking, mm -hmm. and then uh, you go and you tour with, with the, the Real Life Brady mm -hmm. Bunch. And then there was another thing in the book that I love. You came back to Chicago and stayed with Elaine Soloway right. to do a show at the Steppenwolf yes. Theater. Right. Now, is that woman not the patron saint of the arts? Elaine, I, I know. Elaine is Jill and Faith's mother, mm -hmm. and her father, who is now the the, the um, inspiration for trans, right? Um, Jeffrey Tambor's character. Jeff, yeah, it's right. He, he, but this is way before right. he decided he was going to transition. Um, he left uh, Elaine for his mm -hmm. nurse. He was mm -hmm. a psychologist, and so Elaine is. I realized Elaine was then my age now, mm -hmm. like fifty six, and I think maybe she might have been fifty eight. And she was, uh, it was a whole new world for Elaine. And she got a boyfriend, this guy Don, that Jill and Faith did not like. <laughs> they thought he was kind of a perv. I loved him. Right. And I lived with them. You know, Don didn't live with us, but Don would come around a lot. When she had a place like in Lincoln Park on Maud, as I remember. That's where I lived with yeah. her. I lived in her basement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that kind of support, how important is that oh. to, 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 be, to be the success that you are today? Well, I think for anybody. You know, Elaine really became a, a, a mother in a way. She, she, uh, I literally, I remember a therapist said to me, you were living in the basement of a mother. How nurturing and how symbolic is that? It's like going into the darkness of the womb again right. in order to repair. Because I was getting sober at that point, mm -hmm. too. I was going to meetings and stuff. And, um, you know, a lot of stuff was shifting in me. And it was like I was detoxifying not only physically but emotionally. And, um, you know, and I had this safe little cocoon where I lived with somebody who didn't judge me, who loved me unconditionally. And we had great, we had a great time together. And the one thing I like about her, and I think she's really instilled this with her daughters, mm -hmm. is put yourself out there. Don't apologize for promoting yourself yeah. and, and being big. Well, here's the thing. You know, what I love about Elaine Soloway is I got an email from her that, you know, an email blast from her every week. She writes an essay every week, and they're beautiful. I read them every week. I don't always comment, Elaine. I'm sorry, but they're beautiful. She, re she writes an essay every week, and she writes every day. She's, she's a creative, you know, she's one of those people that that's what she does and continues, you know. She's do. just so, I just love her. She's yeah. so nurturing and just so, mm -hmm. and, and, and so you went back and, you, and then you go to L.A., right? Yes, I, I went back, I went to L.A. Um, After the show at Seven Wolf. Right, yeah, I went to L.A. and everybody was still there from the Real Life Brady Bunch and we all had settled in Beachwood Canyon. And uh, we were kind of in a flop house in, the, in Beachwood Canyon. And uh, then um, we all started getting apartments. And Jill and I stayed in Beachwood and lived down the street from each other. Um, and then you start doing commercials. Because my right. wife says to me, she's, she's a big fan of yours. And when she was, when she was she, she's younger than me, so mm -hmm. just so people know that. Um, she said, when you got Best in Show, she goes with her sister, oh, my God, there's the girl from the yogurt commercial. Oh, yogurt? That's what she said, yogurt. I never did a yogurt okay. commercial. Mary Weiss did a yogurt okay. commercial. She might have meant Nexium. What's well, Nexium? Nexium is was my big commercial that bought my house where I was standing on a cliff saying, I am every woman who has ever suffered from acid reflux. And uh, that and you, she might have seen that. And okay. you made a ton of money off that? I, well, I made $70,000. Okay. And it was enough to uh, put a down payment on a house and live. It's that good year. that you talk about money because I like to hear about that. Mm -hmm. So from there, you get this. Th this story I want to hear because sure. I love this one. Um, you then uh, do a commercial, Chris Guest. It's it's a right it's, Kellogg's Frosted Flakes. Right, and a couple. You do the commercial. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me what happens on the day of that commercial. Okay, I shot with Sean Masterson. Okay, who's the Second City yeah, guy? Second City and guy. you knew him from here. Oh right? yeah, I knew him from okay. Second City, and we were husband and wife. And we were uh, stalking Tony the Tiger um, at the Kellogg's headquarters at Battle Creek in Battle Creek, Michigan, which of course we actually shot in Pasadena. But anyway, um, so a we spoiler were, alert! For spoiler people. alert okay. for people who thought we were really in Battle Creek, Michigan. We were not, and uh, we um, it was all improvised. Like you know, he had just done Waiting for Guffman. That was like a year prior. Had you seen it? Yes. Okay. Blown away. Remember going, oh my lord! If I could work like this, if I could be in a, something like this, it would be. 
I mean, I really, I never thought I would. I thought it was preposterous that that could happen for me. But I remember going, oh my God, I, I fucking love this. So What did you love about it? It was so vulnerable. And it was so, it was so these people just wanted to make it in this little world. And they're never going to. They kept saying, we're going to Broadway. And they're not going to go to Broadway. And you don't laugh at them. But you, it touches in the, it touches that part of you that has like this desire to be somebody. All of his movies are about that. It's about these subcultures who want to just be somebody within that subculture, whether it be you know the dog show world or you know the um, folk music world or the you know this little theater. I don't I don't think it ever got any better than when he did get Guffman in terms of that milieu. You know, it's people that you look and go, There's, they're not going to Broadway. And yet, look how much they care about this. And they're not real great at it. But how much do they love this? And they love, they, that's what I loved about that movie. So we're doing this um, kind of uh, very much about, you know, two people who have their great aspiration is to meet Tony the Tiger. You know, and uh, so we improvised that. And then at lunch, um, Chris said to me, you know, I do movies. And I was like, I said, yes. And, uh, and you just played it cool? Yeah, I played it cool. Right. You know, and I was playing, yes, yes. And yeah. uh, I know I loved Waiting for Guffman. And he said, maybe we'll get to work together someday. And I was like, wow, I would love that. And Now, when you hear that, like when I hear that, I'm like, eh. That's... No, I heard it. And I didn't think it would happen. I didn't know, but <sighs> it excited me so much. Okay. So you really take it in I and believe it. it. Okay. And I didn't believe it like, it's going to happen tomorrow. Right, right. I'm not... Like somebody in Blaine, Missouri, and goes, we're going to Broadway. Right. But it it lifted my spirits that here's this guy, and it made the pot the it made the preposterous fantasy into a possibility, not a probability, but a possibility. And you know, when we get those moments in our lives where somebody affirms us and validates and says, "Your podcast is fantastic. You're a great interviewer." It goes, Oh, because that's all you want. You, you're, you're doing this because you love it. And, and when somebody affirms that, somebody who you respect. So that's what it was about. And uh, then I ran into him. Um, I don't know if it went the timeline. I think I wrote in the book. It was a couple of months. Um, I was at the newsroom having breakfast. Which is a coffee. A coffee place that just closed down, which broke. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Let's take a moment. Right. Okay. okay. So we closed down. And, um, that was a very quick grieving <laughs> was. process, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. Yeah, it, and so I was having. I got through today. denial a lot faster. Yeah, me than too. I, I went straight to acceptance. Okay, actually. good. Because um, there are plenty of coffee right. shops in LA. We, uh, I, I ran into him, and he said, um, "Hey, I forgot." It. And Chris never goes, "Hey." So I'm. I'm because uh, I've heard he's a little. Yeah, he is. He went, "Hey, <laughs> I right. am." Uh, I was thinking about you. Um, come to my office later today. So uh, I went to his office. And I, I didn't know what, I, I, I didn't know he was doing the movie, but it was very exciting. I went to. What his are office. you thinking about between when he says, "Come see me in your"? I think he my said office. I was doing a movie. Okay. So I got excited, like okay. you know, maybe I didn't know that when I left, I would have been offered the part, mm -hmm. which I kind of was, sort of wasn't. Uh, so I showed up. I didn't know what to expect, but I was excited as hell. And I showed up, and we just kind of small talk, and and there are always kind of uncomfortable silences. And I wonder if it's a test to see if you can take it. So you know. Just took it and he said, oh, I want you to, you know, I'm doing this movie and I'm thinking of Jennifer Coolidge for this part. And then I'm looking to cast this part. I was going to put uh, Catherine O'Hare in this part, but I've decided she and Eugene Levy are going to be together as this. So I'm looking to cast this part. And uh, you would be, you know, and he kind of told me and I was like, and then he said, here's uh, my producer, Karen Murphy. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. He said, do me a favor. Why don't we, uh, I'll call you today at about five. I said, great. So I purposely took a walk. I was living in Venice. I took a walk on, on the ocean, and I let, just let it go. And 5 o'clock passed, and there was a message. And he said, give me a call. And then he said, hey, you want to go to Vancouver and shoot this? I, we decided that you know, we'll, we'll put you here. And it was never like, congratulations, I want to work with you. He said, we're going to put you here. We will put Catherine there, and we'll put Jennifer here. So we've decided to do that. Would you like to do it? And I said, yes. <laughs> And the interesting thing is, it's a it's a very big part. Did you know that at the time, or did that come through improvisation? Um, well, the the script is set except for the dialogue, so I, I and I hadn't seen it yet, so I didn't know how big the part would be. But um, based on Guffman, I knew I was in an ensemble and I would have moments, you know. And and it it was kind of what I expected, one of um, maybe ten people, and kind of equally distributed, and so I had a feeling that. And how does he work in terms of improvisation? Well, uh, there's no 
rehearsal or anything. He he gives it. This is kind of the drill. He'll give you a call a couple of months before the movie, and in my case, it was when I got it was about a month before. And he'll say, "This is your character. She is." Um, and he'll give you some really cute, funny, never cute, but kind of funny, witty um, descriptions of them. She wishes this. She doesn't have this, and she comes from here, and she wants this. And um, so you work from there. And I had never done this before, so you know I was kind of. Uh, poking around in the dark, but it ends up that I prepared correctly, which is, you know, I prepared for it like I would any other role except more. You go in internally, you get really specific about how this person is, how they talk. You know, I would look at myself in the mirror and talk about things. I would read an article in the paper and opine on it and as the person. So I got to really know this Christy Cummings that I was playing. I, she was all over. And then I was making myself laugh about you know, some of the prejudices she had and the fears that she came from. She just wants to be somebody. She wants to like revenge her, her terrible high school um, uh, experience where everybody made fun of her. You know? And that was like your inner... Yeah, that was my inner thing. You know, you know th those people who kind of walk around with that false bravado. You know? yeah. yeah, I know what I'm doing. And you can't, you can't call them on it because they'll fall apart. Right. <laughs> So were you like walking around, like I would imagine if it was me, I'd be walking around my apartment, I'd be driving in my car, saying dialogue yes. to myself, yes. improvising. Coming up with stories. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I had all, all that packing. I knew how she's talked. I knew what phrases she liked to use. And um, so when we, sh even though I was very nervous when we showed up, I knew who I was. How do you deal with your nerves? Because even back at the annoyance, mm -hmm. I remember... You were so professional. You would come in, and I don't know if it was your acting background. The improvisers, we don't prepare. We, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're all doing bits. You were just coming in very, very focused. How do you deal with your, when you get nervous? Um, I think I learned early on, because I wanted to do this so much, so much. Uh, and I wrote a story in the book about how when I was a freshman in high school, I quit a play. Tell because us about I got that. Afraid. Yes, I, I, I got cast in a play. And everybody laughed at the audition, and I showed up the first day, and I did the same thing for the rehearsal. Nobody laughed, and that happens. It's not like everybody's sitting around. Um, and I quit because I got scared that I was going to suck. And then life went on. The play went on. I, I kind of got a reputation in my high school being, for being a quitter, and I didn't get cast in anything, and I was absolutely destroyed by that. And something in me, and I don't remember the moment, you know, you're young, you don't know when this happened, said, I will never quit again. And so the, when those fears would come up, it would be, quitting or making up excuses why I can't do it was never even on the menu. It was always, just do it. Just do it. You're gonna, you'll, you'll feel so much better once you're up there. <laughs> so, so when you get nervous, you just, you basically push, you just say, you just push I through. breathe. I, you know, that's what I learned to do. I think I had, didn't have those skills early on, but I just breathe and go, this is, you, you, because now I know that adrenaline and that fear, I can actually channel that into something exciting. And how, how do you do that? Um, just let it be. Mm -hmm. Just let it be. Just go, okay, I'm, I'm nervous yeah. or I've got adrenaline. And, and don't, I'm... but don't believe it. You know, I don't believe that it's going to stop me. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that whatever thoughts it's telling me, like, I, like, you know, this is awful. You're going to be terrible. I don't believe it. And usually I'm not terrible. I end up being fine. I've had even lately, though, I, like, I feel like I've uh, uh, I kind of overstretched it, or my ambition was a little too great. Like I sang a song in front of a bunch of famous people. Who was in <laughs> the audience? I, I don't want to say because people, I don't want to say. Total A-lister? huge. Yes, it was huge. It was like starting up with David Geffman to Charlize Theron. Right. And I sang a song and it was just too high for me. And I cracked like three times. Oh, it was terrible. But you know what? I lived How do you it. get over the shame? Uh, uh, well, you don't let it, you don't believe it. You just go, oh, you let it go. But here's the thing I love about you is like, even with this singing tour and this, this new out, this Christmas album, mm -hmm. if you look at Glee, you, you didn't do a lot of the singing. The kid, mm -hmm. you, let, you let the kids do a lot I of the singing. I didn't let anybody do anything. <laughs> if I had my way, I would have been singing every episode. But I mean, going, touring yeah. with uh, yeah. C.J. Jane Singh. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that, that's huge. That's a huge risk you took in your it, career. It was. Because mm -hmm. you could have stayed back in L.A. and waited for offers right. to come in and do guest stars right. and all right. that. Right. No, that was, it was a creative leap. It, absolutely. I will give me that. Absolutely. It was jumping on. And thank, I, thank God I had Kate Flannery, who was so... How important is that to take the leap for someone who believes in ensemble to have somebody like oh, Kate that you've known from Annoyance and Second City yeah. to do it? It's absolutely the best. I've done it by myself, too, but it's much nicer with somebody else. In what way? Well, right before we went on stage for the first time, it was like 
this show didn't really exist until you do it. It's just, you, it's filled with like hopes and, right. great, and a lot of rehearsal, feeling good about it, but when it comes down to it, it's, it, once you walk out there, you're, you're out there until it's over, and you hope to God you remember the pattern in between, you hope you remember your lyrics, you hope your nerves won't get the best of your voice, because at that point, I'm a little more seasoned now, except for that in, instance in front of Charlize Theron, um, where I, I know I can count on my voice. Uh, I didn't know any of that, and, and Kate had me do this exercise where you do opposite, you, you lift and you do this opposite thing. It gets your brain, and it worked. So right as we went on stage, she was like, it's there. It's all there. Let's do this. And I was yes, yes, and it was. It was all there. And it was, that was great, so I was you, so glad to have her. You also mentioned therapy. I'm in therapy twice a week. I love <laughs> talking boy. about therapy. Are you still in therapy? No, I'm, I'm all right. Okay. <laughs> How did therapy help you become therapy a success? Helped, yeah. Look, therapy helped me early on because I was not aware of what was in my way. What was in your way? Um, the same thing that's in everybody's Which way. Which is? Fear, mm -hmm. social conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, What's the social, social conditioning? Social conditioning is that, oh, it's everything. Um, social conditioning is that you have to find a mate and get married and have children. Social conditioning is that... You have to be kind to each other when deep down inside you haven't dealt with any of your shit. Mm -hmm. So you you do false kindness. Right. Social conditioning is the 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 um uh, the the, uh, the the devil in our um, makeup because if we really trusted our true selves, which is much bigger than it goes beyond these bodies too, compassion, love arises naturally. It's not even a choice. It just comes up, and the more you relax and get. And let your personal traits, like the wiring of what you're, because we have wiring, mm -hmm. and it makes us think certain things, it makes us do certain things. But as you, you know, meditation is great. As you breathe and you allow yourself, like, to sit in meditation, that stuff relaxes. You accept it. You know, I'm, I have preferences. I have stupid thoughts, but you're not at all tempted to act on them. And and what arises naturally is love and compassion. And compassion. And sometimes we have to fake it till we make it. But I think our 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 um, our, our challenge in life is to get over ourselves. So to, what does that mean? To all that social conditioning and all of our wiring, we all are certain, not that we're all going to be auto, you know, uh, like robots. robots. No, there's just this beautiful wealth of, of, of joy and bliss and compassion that lies right behind all these, these thought form bullshit things. Well, this is also spiritual. What, yeah. what, what puts you on this path? Uh, I think from the start. Mm -hmm. I think I've always, I've always asked. What's it all about, Alfie? Was my mantra because <laughs> it was also the first movie I ever saw. Believe it or mm -hmm. not, with my mother, I, she had had it with us kids. She said, "I'm going to a movie. You watch those two. I'm taking this one." And she took me to Alfie, which was rated R. And How the, old were you? I probably six. And your your parents were a Catholic, right? Yeah, yeah. But we went to this movie. Um, that had to be a big deal. It right? was. I mean, he was in bed with some girl in the first scene, and then he starts talking to the audience, and I was like, <gasps> and I was just transported. But the whole thing, what's it all about, Alfie? I kept. I asked that my whole life. When you came out, and it's about nothing. When you came out, how did your parents? Were they? Ex well, I, I say this in the book too. Okay. Had I come out when I was eighteen, it would have been a different story. I think mm -hmm. it would have been very difficult mm -hmm. um, because of their social conditioning. Mm -hmm. This was a weird thing. It was an aberration. It was mm -hmm. a mental illness, mm -hmm. uh, homosexuality. And um, by the time I came out, I was thirty-two. I mean, mm -hmm. I had come out, right. but I did not come out to them. They were like, we knew there was something between us. Thank you. You know, my relationship with them was almost non-existent. I was gone. Mm -hmm. I was absent. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, we didn't know that it was this, but we are so happy to know. We love you. It doesn't matter. It was great. And it brought you closer oh, together? Yeah. And we started, we just, we had a, we continued to have a great relationship. Yeah. Another movie that I loved you in mm -hmm. was uh, Steve Carell, 40-year-old uh, yes. version. Now, Judd Apatow also works with, Improv, just like oh, yeah. this guest. Yeah. How do they approach it differently? Um, let me think. How do they? Well, we have we have a script with um uh, with dialogue, and it's usually pretty funny. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, Forty Year Old Virgin was actually you know a really funny script, but we improvised a lot, and he uh, Judd was always throwing stuff out at us, you know, like say this, or um, and then people would say, hey, can I say that? He said, just go do it, and uh, it was very free and creative and fun. Um, I remember when we were shooting the. Um, the tech store uh, scenes, it, uh, maybe there was a two-week period, maybe more, I don't remember, but we were all called in every day, even if we weren't listed on the scenes. And it was like being on the, the bench of a basketball game. It would be like, Lynch, get in there. Rogan, get in there. You know, 
And um, so you work with Steve Carell. You had done the Real Life Brady Bunch with him. Then later you do this this film with Jill Soloway. Right, well, Afternoon Delight. Afternoon Delight. This right. is later. Right. What is it like to work with like Steve or Jill, people that you started out here in Chicago? Uh, well, there's always a great, you know, there's the, the familiarity is also a wonderful thing. Um, and, you know, you're there because they trust you and they like you and, and there's nothing better for starting a creative process than knowing that you're trusted and liked. I, mean, I would go so far as to say loved. Um, so, and, and having come from Chicago, um, people always say to me, I knew you were from Chicago. I could tell because you hang up your clothes was one of the things right. that the wardrobe Are you serious? People, yeah, wardrobe people have said to me. Only be nice to the wardrobe people. Don't always. you think that's a really... Yeah, be nice wardrobe, to the wardrobe people and, and the lighting people. Yeah. And especially the lighting people. And um, uh, everybody. I mean, why not? <laughs> why not make it lovely? Afternoon Delight, working with Jill. You had yeah. some stories oh, you wanted yes. to share with me. Jill is, um, she's a true creative, oh. and she's um, uh, always digging deeper. Mm -hmm. Always. She's one of the most curious people about human nature that I've ever met from day one. Day one. So we're doing Afternoon Delight, and it's basically, Jill uh, had to borrow money to live because it was, she, she was not making any money. And things were not happening, and she got a loan, and she tells the story. She said she was sitting on the toilet, I think she was, or her husband was, I forget which, and said, let's bet on me with this money, and let's use it to make a movie. So Do you that, know what the budget was? I don't, I don't okay. know what the numbers were, okay. but I know that she took a bet on herself, and she wrote this terrific script. She got Katherine Hahn, you know, she got, um, uh, uh, Rad, Radner, what's his first name? Josh. I'm so sorry. This is embarrassing. Cut this out. The guy who's in, uh, we, we will edit this, right? Yeah. Oh, God, he was on a CBS. What is it? How I Met My Mother. I, I love him. Josh Radner. Okay. So she, she got Katherine Hahn, mm -hmm. Josh Radner. Moi. She asked me. Um, she asked me before she even you're had the funding. You're smiling when you say that. <laughs> you're like, it, you're, your face lights up. I was off. thrilled, yeah. Uh, she, she asked me to do it before. I didn't even read the script, and I said, of course. You know, because I love working with Jill, and I'll explain why that was you know, absolutely um, uh, if affirmed for me and makes me want to work with her forever. We got there, and she had taken from this kind of wackadoodle-doo girl, but she took from it great stuff, um, a very deep, organic, emotionally invested way to create a film. So Jill was as connected emotionally to the... Uh, the characters' journeys as we were. And we started every day with a little prayer, uh, you know, a holding of the hand saying, this is a safe space. We're all here for each other. Anything goes. And the cameraman, too. The cameraman would be involved in it, too. He, Jim, his, he, he, was, uh, he did a handheld a lot, a lot anyway. And um, so uh, I, was, I was shooting this scene. I played the therapist with Katherine Hahn, and it's the scene where... You know, I'm, I'm kind of this very cold um, woman who talks far too much about herself in the sessions. A about, bad therapist. Yeah, about, Just for, about for people how, to know how healthy that. she is. Right. And her lover, Portia. And uh, the spectacular life that they have. And then uh, Catherine comes in, and Catherine's character is all about she's been taking care of others for so long and hasn't taken care of herself. So Catherine comes in, and I, the therapist, break down and say, Portia left me. I, what am I going to do? And I end up in her lap, and she's stroking my hair like, going, here I am again with my therapist taking care of other people. So to get to that point of the crying, um, when it comes to that kind of stuff, I don't like to talk about it. It was like, it, it, hopefully it'll come. Don't talk to me about it. The, the crying. Yeah, the crying thing. I, I know I have to get to some place emotionally. But you don't want to put any pressure on yourself, I right? don't. Okay. So let's, I don't even want to talk about it. And so uh, Jill is, I'm like sitting in a chair like this. She's right there. And she's got her headphones on, and, she, and I can feel her, and I'm like, is she going to be there the whole time? And something happens in the scene where I'm about to tell her that Portia left me, and I hear Jill burst into tears, and then I burst into tears. <laughs> when you hear your, like, best friend, someone you really love, you know, 
we don't see each other every day, but someone you really love, so invested. And that just like, her energy went right into me. And I fell into Catherine Hahn's lap. What does that say about your relationship with her? That she's willing... She's just open. She's the most open person. Just And, and like I said, it's ever-evolving. And, and she trumped me. You know, I was like, I'll get there. I'll get there. I'll do my old things. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll get there. I don't want to talk about it. This is kind of a big fear of mine that I won't get emotionally where I need to get. And um, the last thing you want to do is I want to talk about it. And so she was like, let's talk. I said, I don't want to talk about it. But just her sitting right there, and I remember being annoyed at first going, what are you doing there? Why are you sitting there? Oh, you're actually helping me. And she helped. Oh, my God. She, she gave it to me. Let's talk about Glee for a second. No, I want to cry. Okay. <laughs> I we can cry. No, no, you no. want to cry? No, no, no. I'm going to drink my tea and talk about Glee. Okay. And I just made a rhyme. Um, the character, Sue Sil Silvestri. Mm-hmm. Sylvester. Sylvester. She was not Italian. Okay. She was pure, 100% American. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that character, mean character, right? Yes. Okay. How do you do play a mean character in a comedy? Mm -hmm. and, and it, as I watch that show, you had so much fun playing that character. I did. What is she protecting is the first thing that I don't even consciously ask myself. I just kind of know what that that's What is she protecting? Right. Uh, the tenderest heart in the freaking world. The, the most... The most, so tender that she thinks she has to put it under lock and key. And um, I came up with something for myself, what I'm protecting. I came up with the fact that she had a terrible high school. You know, I got very specific about it, that she was ridiculed in high school, and now this is her revenge, being the, the popular cheerleading coach. She doesn't even really care about cheerleading. She just went, what's the most popular uh, uh, institution in the school? cheerleader and that's and that's where I came from in the beginning and then the brilliant geniuses including Ian Brennan who's a Chicago boy came up with is that I have a sister with Down syndrome they came up with that like in the middle of the first season and I and I raised this sister so I have been a warrior for this beautiful being that the earth is is really mean to so that's what I'm that's where my why, why I'm I've protected my heart and I'm I'm avenging what came at my sister and what I tried to protect. Well, and, and, and as an audience, it also makes you more compassionate. Yes, and that's why I think people don't hate me. And also, I'm, I'm not Hannibal Lecter. Mm -hmm. I, uh, Sue Sylvester is um, laughably narcissistic, bloviating, not unlike somebody we elected. Right. <laughs> but we'll, we'll find out. Right. And the thing I is, do you have to, when you play that it, for mm -hmm. comedy, it's different than if you played it for a film. Oh, yes. Do you have to, how, how do you? You blow it up. Okay. You, you blow it up and you look at what makes, what makes it laughable is it's, it's so uh, transparent. It's so, you can see what she's trying. It's not opaque at all. You see what she's doing. You see the wheels turning and you see the pretense and, uh, you know, uh, there's something in you that senses, even though you might not know this consciously, that she's protecting something really soft and tender, which is not only her heart, but her sister. What do you think that you could identify with, with, with her? What are you oh, protecting? Oh, um, uh, 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 I don't know how to put it into just one sentence, but uh, I'll just tell you that when I was a kid, I had a terrible temper, and it was based in that. Don't you dare try to humiliate me or shame me, and then because I—that's when I would get rageful. If I would feel demeaned, had you? I didn't live that way. I, right. You know, with a character, you take it and you, you, right. you kind of put it into uh, one entity. But I, I know that feeling. Was there an incident that you sticks out that you're like, someone tried to humiliate me when I was younger? Or? No, not really. Oh, I remember. I, when I was a kid, I peed my pants, and a guy, two guys picked me up and showed that I, I peed my pants. I was probably 19. No, I'm kidding. Right. I was probably about four, and I but remember that. But that's, that is traumatic. That, right. does come, that does come. I don't think that's the only reason, but I do remember that and being just kicking and screaming, and I didn't know the F word, but I would have. Were you taller than everybody else when you oh, were this, young? Oh, these were bigger, bigger kids. Right, but when you were growing up. Yes, I okay. was taller than and everybody did you And did people give you shit for that? No, not really. Okay. No. That wasn't a thing, really. Yeah. And and Glee, you get all these awards. I mean, it was 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 that. Do you, how do you look back at that time? Did you know it was going to be like? I had a feeling. I didn't know that it would be like that for me. And it was, you know, it was it was a big thing. But I, I knew that the show would. I, I knew it would be a hit, but not a big hit. I didn't know it would be a big hit. Um, 
because uh, I think this whole underdog kind of um, finding a place where they everybody has their back is so powerful. And then the songs and mm-hmm. um, uh, that they get together to sing, you know, in a room, and it's kind of a bunch, bunch of misfits. You know, the land of misfit toys. I think Sue Sylvester called them the island of misfit toys. And, Which oh, was something that they referred to. Remember when we were at the Annoyance, they called us the land of misfit toys. Do you oh, did they? That? No, I don't. Yes, know. that was uh, the mm-hmm. press had. I yeah. think Scott Allman had had coined that phrase that mm-hmm. we were the land of misfit toys, and they picked up. Well, on that, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes, Th- those kids were as well, and uh, they all come together, and they're stronger together. <laughs> A Hillary phrase. Right. Um, they're stronger together, and they they accept every accept everybody for their differences embrace them for what makes them different and and um and and uh protect each other and then they sing beautifully and so when we were doing that scene in the pilot where they're on stage and they're just in red t-shirts they're not in the big costumes to come you know when we did the big every musical number cost 7 million dollars to produce they're basically on an empty stage um wearing red t-shirts and they do uh um the journey song what is it don't stop believing. Don't stop believing. Do, mm-hmm. Was it fun? You're you certainly were older in the cast. I mean, these kids are you know nineteen, twenty, right? Oh, twenty three. Okay, twenty three. All right. At the time. Another spoiler alert. Yeah, right. Yes. Was it interesting to watch like it get popular and people how they dealt with their fame? Mm-hmm. Some people, I'm sure, had attitudes. Other people were very humble by it. And you, being the you know the journey person that you were, could could really appreciate. Where? Yeah, I did re- appreciate that we were um, in rarefied air. I knew that. And, and I don't think that they didn't either. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they were great. They're mm-hmm. like Kevin McHale and Jenna Ushkowitz. And they're great people. You know, uh, Corey Monteith, who mm-hmm. we lost in the, the yeah. fourth, third season. Was that hard for you? Um, it was hard for everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I didn't know. I didn't hang out with the kids that much. They were very close. Right. It devastated them. Mm-hmm. It really gutted. It gutted them. Um, but he was, at the time, early on, I remember talking to him about this. He knew, too, that we were breathing rarefied there. He was a really nice guy. Right. And he was sober. Mm-hmm. And he um, had gone through a really rough childhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, unthinkable things happened to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, along with his drug abuse. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, he's basically a street kid. So he had this kind of uh, joie de vie that um, he got it. He mm-hmm. really got it. Um, uh, and then, you know, he, he, went, he went back to drugs and pretty quickly he flamed out. Uh, what, was, what was your role with, uh, amongst, uh, amongst the re- regular cast? Did I they didn't co- really have, they never came to me for advice. That's right? what I would no, imagine. No, no. They're like, Jane, tell us, you know, tell you us. Tell us the story. Yeah, about- yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they didn't you care. <laughs> and I, and I, that we really didn't, we had kind of separate existences and they were like I said they were one of the things about being a young person in show business and you get to the point where these kids got most of them some mm-hmm. some of them had never right. done anything before and had never even sung or danced before right. but um, they got to where they are because you grow up very fast mm-hmm. because there's so much uh, um, to be in the business you are expected not to act like a child right and some ended up acting like children but for the most part they showed up knew their lines they were professionals. Mm-hmm. And then, does that give you the inspiration then, then to go out and sing with C. Jane Singh and then do this Christmas album? I don't know. I guess it, it's all cumulative. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, uh, yeah, probably. You know, I think what just in terms of the chain of events, um, I was offered Annie on Broadway in 2013. To play the summer, Mrs. Miss Hannigan, yes. Right. And, um, Which is funny because Carol Burnett played it she in She played movie it, yeah, and then I, I played her uh, daughter, and I played her daughter-in-law in a movie before. So, what yeah. was that like for you to meet her? Oh, amazing. And, you know, uh, she when I first got on the set uh, for, it's called Postgrad, and I was her daughter-in-law. Um, my, my, I was in a, a, you know, a double banger mm-hmm. uh, wagon. And for, for people, that that's a, the trailer that, that they put That has two you dressing rooms. Right. And um, my door was open, and uh, she said, Jane? And I was like, is that Carol? And she opened her arms and bounced, bounded up my stairs and gave me a big hug. I'm so glad to meet you. And we had a wonderful talk. And, you know, I, I count her as a friend. She wrote the foreword for my book. And I see she lives out in Montecito. And I see her there. And, you know, she's how do you, great. How do you become friends with Carol Burnett when you do a couple days on a movie? Well, I don't know that we're friends like we am. I do. Right, right. <laughs> but I, I have great affection for her. And mm-hmm. I know that she has great affection. Are you friends with Meryl Streep? Because uh, you did Julia and Julia yeah. with her. Uh, no. Uh, no. <laughs> what, what was that like? Oh, that was amazing, too. She's a lovely person. Um, uh, you know, you just don't... 
if they're you're fanning out over somebody and geeking out over somebody, and you you show up, you, that's got to really got to leave that at the door. How you do you just draft that? You just do. Okay. It's a job. Okay. You just do. You got something to do. I had bigger fish to fry than, oh, I'm working with uh, Meryl Streep. <laughs> I, you know, she was another actor, and she treated me as such, and and um, uh, you know, there was affection, and mm -hmm. and um, we, had, we had a lovely time. But you just you have to let that go. So we were talking about the chain of events then. Mm -hmm. uh, with oh the yes. Singing, yeah. Oh yeah. So anyway, I was offered um, the thing on Broadway uh, to do Annie, and I had thought up in the, at that time I didn't want to be on stage anymore. I really loved what I was doing, and I I, I just didn't have that desire. I didn't ha you have to really want it? And it's eight shows a week. It's hard work. It's, it is hard work, and I and I just didn't have the compulsion. Mm -hmm. So I was offered that, and mm -hmm. I thought, who says no to Annie on Broadway? I, that sounds like a great thing to do. And mm -hmm. I was getting divorced, and it seemed like a wonderful way to mm -hmm. kind of... Uh, not deal with it. Not deal with it, and go to a leave, and, right, right. and you know, be in the company of theater people. Right. And all of a sudden, it felt really like the thing to do. Mm -hmm. And um, so I did that, and I loved it. I loved it. Surprised yourself. I surprised myself. I w it was like what did I was you love about reinfected it? with the bug. The live, uh, the, the first of all, the camaraderie. Like mm -hmm. the, um, the you know, when you do, are put into a Broadway show, you have two rehearsals. Two They're rehearsals? called put-in rehearsals. Okay. You have to work on your own and get this done. So I worked in L.A. Mm -hmm. I, I had a, a tape of the, the performance. I watched my blocking. I made. I mean, I had to do this all by myself. They sent the musical director out for a weekend, and we worked on the songs, and they sent. A, they had a choreographer mm -hmm. work with me in town, and um, I learned the moves. I learned my blocking. I learned my lines. I created stuff for myself. I, I did my acting job. I did. I did everything. I was ready to hit the ground running by the time for my two put-in rehearsals. And the way that cast rallied around me and took care of me, and how in the moment, you know, there's somebody new saying the line to them, and you saw them go light up like it was exciting for them. They had been doing the show for months, and it kind of it was different for them. Now it was like, oh, I can react differently, and. You know, uh, it, it's with a different human being in the role, it changes the energy. And it was a real positive thing. It felt great. And um, then putting on your own, I remember the girl put on my makeup for the photo shoot. And I said, will you be doing my makeup every night? And she said, oh, dear, you're in the theater. You put on your own makeup. And I was like, that's right. I know that. Yes. I started out doing this. Yeah, yeah. So I'm doing my own makeup and, um, you know, showing up at the theater and the camaraderie and being on stage and, just the the um, the audience and and that whole reciprocal thing that goes on. How they're fifty percent of the experience, and I loved singing. I loved you know I'm not a great dancer, but they dumbed down the moves for me so that I felt good. And um, the great thing of you know going home and then a good night's sleep. And when you wake up, all you have to do is keep your voice nice and relaxed until you go back to the theater. I loved it. I love so that's when Fifty Four Below, which is a cabaret space in New York, uh, offered me three nights um, or four nights to do my act because most Broadway people have an act. You know, when they're not in a show, they do their act. And I said, I don't have an act, but I will get one. So I scheduled uh, my four days in June. I think they offered them to me in a, like March or something. Called Kate Flannery immediately, toot sweet, right. and said, you're doing this with me? And she said, yes. And, and I got a trio. In fact, the musical director, uh, Annie, was our piano player and uh, bass player and um, uh, uh, drummer. So we had our trio, and Kate and I worked on it, and we went out to New York and we did it. And it was a blast. So that's how that started. And then we loved it so much that I got an agent. Um, uh, ICM uh, signed me to be my booker. And so we started, uh, they started booking me all over the country. I mean, we had these great, great uh, performing arts centers, and then some of these little cabaret theaters. We went all over the place. And so I added Tim. And then I needed a band that could travel because my guys in um, New York were uh, Broadway people. So we got the Tony Guerrero Quintet. And at first I was like, oh, God, I don't know if I want a quintet. Do we need all that? And then we had our first rehearsal and I was like, oh, wow, we need all that. Because we had horns and had a guy in the, um, uh, we had a clarinet player. We had a guy on the trumpet, Tony, and two keyboards. It was just amazing. And our drummers. So awesome. So, and, and Tim introduced me to, to And then how did you want to do a Christmas album then? Uh, that we, we were touring, and it was, I think, around April or May. And we said, why not? I think Tony, who has all the good ideas, brought it up, said, what do you think about a Christmas album? It's like, yeah. So we went into my dressing room one uh, day before the show, and, and we went on public domain. And we looked up public domain Christmas songs because we're going to do it ourselves. How many are there? Hundreds. Okay. <laughs> so, but they're great ones. Okay. So we picked ten. 
And then Tony had written about three. He said, I can write two more. There's your 15. So, and then he got to work on the arrangements. He arranged all of it. And then he had, oh, he's a part owner of a studio and he brought in these amazing players. And they laid down the orchestra tracks, and then we laid down the vocals, and we've got a Christmas album. Now, when I look at your career, because you know I'm jealous and envious of everybody's career. Oh, I know. Story, yeah, you know well, I, that was my point. Right, right. I'm doing this interview. Yeah, yeah. It seems like stuff, you've had a great career, and things just keep coming to you. Would you say mm -hmm. that's true? I would say that's true. But there is a business side of this, too, mm -hmm. don't you think? Mm -hmm. What is the business side that, that people need to... I don't know that people need to know, but I will tell you with this album, you know, it's, I'm, I, myself and a couple, uh, and I won't say who because it's, I don't want to reveal what I'm going to reveal, we're paying for all of it. Mm -hmm. And it's not cheap, and it's also been a learning process. We've never done this before. Mm -hmm. We don't understand the music industry. Mm -hmm. So we've had to ask people for help. And some of it, we, some people have come forward and said, now give it, you know, for fun and for free. And others were paying mm -hmm. as well. We should. They're professionals doing a right. job for us. So we're learning what it takes to like, let's do a Christmas album. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a lot. And mm -hmm. we, but we've loved every part of it. And we've had people help us along the way. Like mm -hmm. I was telling you about Kate's uh, boyfriend, Chris Haston is right. a photographer for NBC. He shot our album cover. He tours with us. He comes with us. Mm -hmm. He takes pictures every time for fun and for free. And he's basically our, our mascot, mm -hmm. such a nice guy. And so, yeah, people just step up, and it's been amazing. So that, that, that's the business side. And, you know, I, I, I roll solo. I don't, I don't bring people with me. You don't have an entourage? No, I don't. I show up on my own. And sometimes um, uh, people will want to come with me, like, mm -hmm. you know, a, a PR person for if I'm on a show. You know, I'm not going to say you can't come with me to do your job because I roll solo. <laughs> Um, we've got to wrap this up. This is no. Great. Yes, we do. We do. Okay. Um, we always ask the, the the final question of this podcast is what piece of advice would you give to somebody who's doing in, who's starting out in improv That's comedy right, this today? Is improv. Yeah. Um, starting out in improv today, or or comedy or sketch yeah, or whatever. Well, the first thing I'd say, and this probably goes for anything, don't put the cart before the horse. Don't don't be deciding what you want to do, what kind of an artist you want to be. Um, who don't like I want to be the next um, you know Chris Farley or I want to be the next cat uh, Kristen Wiig let all that stuff go have have your own journey don't decide uh, where you should be in 10 years or five years or even 15 minutes just stay in the moment which is the best improv in the world you, you, the thing about improv is that you really can't go you can't go up there with any kind of agenda you can maybe have a first line dialogue in your mind oh, I got but then you got to be prepared to throw that all away if someone says blah 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 blah. You know what I mean? You it, that's how life should be lived. You know, I know that a lot of you guys are professional improv people who go to like businesses and says this is why improv is good for you because it is. It's being in the moment and f taking what you, the input that you get in the moment and responding to it. You know, it's so like I said, don't don't have goals. I did a speech at Columbia this year. I said, don't have goals. At the Columbia College? <laughs> yeah, I did their commencement, yes. And you said, don't have goals. You have no goals. Because you, you never had goals? Well, I thought I had to, so I would make some up. But I knew intuitively, don't have them. Why? Well, to have goals, then you've painted yourself in a corner, and you've decided how something's going to look. And what you could be doing is right there, and you look right past it. Because it doesn't fit your agenda. How many times have you accidentally found yourself in the right place a lot of a, a lot, lot of times. times that's why I call my book happy <laughs> and you accidentally find yourself in the right place and there's no accident you know what it means is that you sat and you, you were how breathing you and you're present and you went oh <laughs> but how do you stay open to that because there's do. so you just do you know there is like I said a lot of our stuff in life is just to get get over ourselves all those thoughts we have in our head and all those conflicting desires is just to let them play themselves out, but don't act on them. And what's right in front of you? You're right in front of me right now. I got to ask you one more question. And it's, it might not be a fair question, but it came into my mind. Mm -hmm. You've done so much. Like, you've won tons of awards. You've been on Glee. You hosted Saturday Night Live. You hosted an award show. Was it the Emmys? Yes. Okay. What was, what was the, the thing that was like, oh, my God, I can't believe like the thing that was just like, this is amazing. Like I can't believe I I would never have dreamed that that, that I that really felt amazing. Yes. Or I thought I should say this give me, is amazing. Give me both of them. Okay. 
like like say winning an Emmy or hosting the Emmys, I felt I was supposed to say, this is amazing, but it didn't feel that way. Why do you think that is? It just doesn't. Okay. It doesn't mean anything. Okay. It really doesn't. It's it's. I was going to say it's wonderful in the moment, but it's not even really wonderful in the moment. It's not bad. Mm -hmm. But it's really just very. My joy comes in like talking to you, and mm -hmm. it really is. I, I mean, the, the search for like I want to win this and win that. It doesn't mean anything. It really doesn't mean anything. You can make something up about what it means, but it it's just it does. It's neither here nor there. It comes and it goes, and like, like clouds. What's the thing <laughs> that was like, oh my God? Nothing. Are you serious? Yeah. I haven't had an oh my God. I don't think I ever will. I hope I don't ever. <laughs> and I won't. I won't. No. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that, is really, that, that, is, that, that is really good to know. Is it? Yeah, because I think, for I'm me... I'm glad to hear you say that. I but... would love to... Well, I'm not there, but mm -hmm. I would love to win an Emmy because I think it would be validation. And the day, the night you won the Emmy, is it just like, oh, it's exciting, but the next morning it's just like... I oh. didn't even have that. This is exciting. I felt I should have that, and that's social conditioning. <laughs> Where I feel I should go, oh my God, this is so exciting. And, you know, and you'll see me accept awards on like, um, YouTube. And it's just because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. And I was trying to, it's almost like, oh, it's Christmas. <laughs> so like getting a good review or get, being in a, in a Chris Guest movie or making a lot of money or something, does that, because this is, I'm projecting my Yeah, you know what, I, I must me. say, having made money makes me feel safe. Mm -hmm. For sure. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, being in the Christopher Guest movie was a, but when it, it was more when I thought I was going to get it. When I thought, maybe I'm going to be in a Chris Guest movie. And then when I did get in the Chris Guest movie, it was like, okay, now I have to do this. Okay, I'm free then. And let's see, what is she like? There was really never any true, because <sighs> it's just, it's just all, it's the meaning, everything has the meaning you give it. And if you, I think there's something intuitively in me that has always known, and I think we all know it on some level, that so you don't have to ascribe a meaning to everything. And that's why I think you're so successful, because you walk through and you're not holding on it to it, like someone like me mm -hmm. or a lot of people we see in Hollywood, like, I got to have this because it's going to validate me. Mm -hmm. It's a, Because it's not about your self-esteem. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, self-esteem. Jane Lynch, thank you so much. <laughs> what were you going to say about self-esteem? Nothing, just, uh, just, I guess it's like, self-esteem is... Um, I think just reinf I don't know. I, I'm going to But it's not going to come. You're, what you're telling me, mm -hmm. me, because I need to hear. It's not going to become. I don't not, have self-esteem. You don't? <laughs> I don't. I, I, I think self, I, I, I think. Um, but don't you think you I have. I have an unquestioning, unquestioning and deep-rooted faith that we're all just fine. Everything's just fine. But you don't have even a low in these, not, even in these trying times. Right, but you don't, <laughs> but you don't have a low self-esteem about yourself. I don't, I don't have low or high. Okay. Yeah. I have nothing. Well, this, this has been helpful for me, you know. <laughs> yeah. Can, another question, mm -hmm. then we got to wrap this up. Yeah. You seem to, you always play therapists. Yeah, I know. You know. What do you think that is? Um, I, I, why do I think, I think that we come into this world with certain qualities that are just part of our wiring, and people see me as somebody who knows what they're talking about. And and it used to blow my mind when I was younger because I, I didn't know what I was talking about. Like they were I had a wise. deep fear that I really knew nothing. But there's something about the way I carry myself that... I don't take any credit for it. It's just the way I was brought into this world that people, it's like people project gangster on Joe Pesci. Right. Pesci. Um, and they, you know, uh, uh, project um, something else on somebody else. But yeah, people project authority on me. Jane Lynch, thank you so thank much you. for being our guest. I could go all day. I, I really too. appreciate it. This was yeah, so much fun. Great. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. And I want to thank our guest, Jane Lynch. And I also want to plug her new album, A Swingin' Little Christmas, with Kate Flannery and Tim Davis. It's on iTunes. So if you liked Up on the Housetop, you're going to love all the other songs. Um, so check that out on iTunes, A Swingin' Little Christmas. I want to thank Sam Bowers, who is the director of Improv Nerd, and of course, Dan Schiffmacher, the producer of Improv Nerd. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. Professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. 
Also, uh, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corrine, and my award-winning improv workshops and classes and intensives, and to sign up for the Improv Nerd newsletter, go to my website, jimmycorrine.com. And as you know, we are on social media. We are taking over social media. We're very sly about it. We're very, we, we, we don't brag about it. Uh, but uh, go to our Improv Nerd Facebook page and like, like, like it because it really helps with my low self-esteem. Follow us on Twitter, improv underscore nerd. And then, of course, this YouTube channel. I cannot... Dan is just cranking out some great videos. They're clips from our live shows and also clips when we do interviews with... Um, when we go... We're invited into hotel suites and stuff like that. So we have, like, Adam McKay's on there, Jane Lynch. We, I don't know. Some uh, some of the clips might be on there. But Dan's uh, put some clips together or will be putting some clips together on our YouTube channel. So check that out. We're also part of this podcast collective called Feral Audio. What... I mean, they're just getting more and more downloads. Feral Audio, if you haven't gone to feralaudio.com, go to feralaudio.com and check out all the wonderful podcasts. I can't even name them. There's so many, and they're really, really funny. Uh, And, of course, I want to thank you for listening. And remember, until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island yeah. and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 